I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And when was the last time you got just a little bit wild? Stayed out later than you should have, maybe drank a bit too much, made out with an absolute stranger, or did just a ton of illicit drugs and trespassed on federal property. Okay, so the word wild is subjective, and our guest this week hosts a podcast that invites people to define it however they see fit, with outrageous, scandalous, ridiculous, and even poignant results. Rocky Powell is a comedian and podcast host living in New York City. She hosts the comedy podcast Wild Nights with Rocky Powell, entertainers reliving their wildest nights one episode at a time. Rocky, thanks so much for joining us. Michael, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm glad it's a mutual pleasure here because it would be a little weird if it was only one-sided. Now, before we get to how you decided to debut the show that dares guests to dish out decadent details of debauchery, let's learn a little about the woman behind it all, you. You're an actor and improv performer living in New York. So what kind of person were you when you were small? And did you always know you wanted to be a performer or was it something you discovered along the way at some point? I think I, I would say I always knew I wanted to be a performer. My parents were about as 80s as it gets. They're quintessential late 70s, early 80s people. That was their... Now you're talking decades, not that they were septuagenarians when they were raising you? Correct. The like mid 70s to mid 80s is when they really were thriving. And so growing up, my living room had full length mirrors lined the entire living room. It was just the three of us and before my brother was born and I would just do these performances in the living room, in front of the mirror. I would call it the Rocky Show Begins at four years old. I would do these elaborate parties for all my dolls where I would throw all the dolls on the bed, I'd throw a blanket over us and I would just mingle through checking on everybody to see if they were having fun at my party. So I was always pretty imaginative. And I started doing plays regularly in eighth grade in school. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of my own childhood. I had a, I don't even know how, how to describe it. It was this enormous chest that I would keep all of my performance supplies in when I was four or five, six years old. I had a bunch of like fake mustaches and wigs and glasses and outfits that I would put on. And at that age, the lines between reality and what you perceive to be reality as a child and what obviously is reality to the adults around you was kind of blurred because I would put myself in these costumes, like I would dress up as a salesman with like a fake mustache and I'd like go through the backyard around to the front door and I would pretend to be a salesman. And I was convinced that my parents couldn't tell it was me underneath my fake mustache and my glasses and my trench coat, even though, of course, I was four years old and like three feet tall. But I always had that same kind of love of acting and performing probably through some section of high school. But around then is when I started to change my career path and go from in front of the camera to behind it and focus more on writing and those sorts of things. So when did for you that transition happen where you went from that kid who loved performing, as many kids often do, to realizing, oh, wait, I love performing for my family and friends as a kid, but I also think I want to pursue this as a career. When I was 16, I realized that it was a possibility because I was very close with all the drama kids in the theater department, and I'd gotten a pretty hefty role in, in one of the plays my sophomore year. I was a sophomore, but I was friends with juniors, I was friends with seniors, and everyone was so tight and a lot of them were going to school, the seniors in high school, they were going to school for theater. And my drama teacher, her husband was our choreographer for the musicals. He went to Adelphi University on Long Island, which is where Jonathan Larson, the creator of Rent, Tick, Tick, Boom, he went to school with him. And I kind of realized, oh, you can get a degree in acting. You can go to college for acting. This is the most fun ever. Why would I not do that? Why would I not pursue that? And so my parents were always super supportive. There was no, you can't do this, or this is a, you need a backup plan. They were just, if you want to do this, we've got your back. So my drama teacher's husband, the two of them kind of helped me, you know, coach monologues and write letters of recommendation. And then I was able to say, okay, I'm going to go to school for theater and make it a career. Something you said about your parents having floor-to-ceiling mirrors in their home. 
It just made me realize that like in the 80s and 70s, I imagine it was like really hard to figure out who the hell was doing cocaine. Like the interior of everyone's home looked like they could bust out into a cocaine fueled party at any given moment, even if they were totally square. Yeah, I won't out my parents as people who did cocaine, but I will say that they were not square. <laughs> There's nothing square about them except their platforms. I have to say, this next question is, of course, biased by my own perspective. But as a performer, as an actor, as someone who likes talking to and being around other entertainers, I obviously have a dog in this fight, but why not Los Angeles? We do have better weather. Yeah. And it's funny too. I feel like my parents are coming up so much in this episode. My mom actually, they moved to Orange County before I was born and then my dad got homesick. So they went back to the East Coast. But I would love to live in California. I have, I'm very close with my family. I'm one of those people that, you know, I go to, I was telling you, like I'm from Connecticut and originally, and it's not very far from the city. So I can get home pretty easily. I'm one of those people who I like to go like have a glass of wine with my grandmother on her porch and I smoke weed with my aunts and mom and my family is tight. We go to concerts together. We enjoy each other's company. Tomorrow's Easter. I'm looking forward to seeing them for Easter. And my friend group in New York is also extremely tight. Just love each other. Like as the years go on, we just get closer and closer. And my brother lives in the city with me too. So his girlfriend's here. I'm close with them. Especially now with the evolution that the pandemic forced everyone into virtually. So we're able to do stuff like this. It's just not my time to be in LA as much as I think, you know, would be a fun chapter. I'm still not done with New York. I love it here. That's fair. And I totally understand the part about being really close with your family. Now, are you familiar with the comedian and actor Rick Glassman? I know of him. Glasses, curly hair. Yes, yes. Yeah. He's on the Amazon Prime show, As We See It, and he has this podcast called Take Your Shoes Off. And the reason I bring him up is he interviews comedians, performers, et cetera, on his show, often in his own living room. But his family also plays a huge part in his show. He'll have his mom and his dad on, his uncles on as guests. They'll all smoke weed and get high together. It's really endearing and hilarious watching his dad and his uncles try to have really deep and serious conversations between bursts of weed-induced laughter. Have you ever thought about having your own family members on your show? I thought about having my dad on. I think I will. He's a great storyteller. He has had an extremely wild life, way wilder than I could ever imagine for myself. And with some crossover because of his wildness, it has been part of my life. But I have thought about having him on. I think that would be fun. Maybe as a like a bonus episode or something, you know? That would be really fun. Yeah. Not only would we get a chance to see where the Rocky Pal we've come to know from this show came from, the origin story. But it sounds like your dad has quite a few wild nights to share. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to put it lightly. I'd say so. I'd say so. <laughs> For sure. There's a line from one of Jerry Seinfeld's recent specials in which he talks about the distinction between his performer self and his offstage self. When he's on stage, when he's performing, he's comfortable and at ease. And when he's interacting with people day to day, he is much more anxious. But to put it in his words from the special quote, I can talk to all of you, but I can't talk to any of you. There are other performers who seem to be the same person in whatever situation they're in. The only difference being that their onstage act might be a little more rehearsed and honed, but otherwise, kind of what you see is what you get. As a performer yourself, are you more of a bifurcated personality like a Seinfeld? Is there an onstage rocking and offstage where there's a substantial difference? Or are you pretty much the same person when you're on, whether hosting the podcast, being a performer and off? Or what's that like? That's a really good question. Jerry Seinfeld and I have the same birthday. I would say I'm very outgoing. I have no problem sparking up a conversation with anyone. The other day I was parallel parking and the street I was parallel parking on is extremely busy, three lanes. Nobody has time for nonsense and everyone's annoyed when people have to parallel park, but it's a necessity in the city sometimes. And I saw this guy staring at me as I was parking and I was parking a big Subaru. So it was like a boat. And I look at him and I just go, do I got room? I got more room. And he and he looked at me like so surprised. He goes, what? I was like, I can't see. Do, do I have room back there? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, this thing's a boat. And then he just started hysterically laughing because I don't think anyone's ever asked him while he sat in his driver's side, you know, for help 
just being quirky and honest. And I really was like, hey, man, I need you to tell me if I have room. If you're going to stare, at least make it a thing. So I think I've always been outgoing, but there was more, I don't want to say a lack of confidence, but doing the podcast and just meeting so many strangers that are in the comedy world and having to figure out, I've never interviewed anyone before the show, figuring out what my voice is in that sense. It's given my onstage, because I do improv, it's given my onstage personality and my podcast personality when I speak to people. It's made me a lot stronger, a lot more confident the way I would be if I was just roaming the streets. I was almost the opposite, where I was more confident just being myself than I was on stage. And now I feel like I've gotten to a place where I feel strong doing both. And I think that for certain people, that just comes with time and age. But I would say I'm pretty much the same. Sometimes it's a little annoying because my personality is eccentric and my personality is like bubbly and happy and making people laugh. People want you to be on or people expect you to be the life of the party. That's why I really like my friend group. Everybody, even though not all of them are performers, a lot of them do have performing backgrounds, but they are all so hysterical. They're all so loud. They're all so funny that sometimes when I'm hanging out with my friend group, I can just sit back and chill and I don't have to be the one making everyone laugh and the one keeping the conversation in the air because we're all fighting to talk over each other. So I actually sometimes prefer that. And you make a really good point about how there is a pretty substantial difference between being kind of naturally extroverted and good at talking with people, whether they be strangers or friends, et cetera, and being good on mic, for instance, or being a good host or being a good performer. They're very different skill sets because a conversation with a friend can be really engaging in the moment when you're talking with them because they're your friend or because you've both had a couple drinks or there's all the backstory that you know behind the story that you're listening to. But if you've ever had the good or perhaps bad fortune of listening to yourself recorded, just shooting the shit with a friend of yours later, and you're just listening to it objectively, you can see the little bits and pieces that might be funny or engaging to an outsider. But when you're listening back to that conversation, that's just totally improvised, like all conversations are, unless, of course, they're with a purpose like a podcast, you realize very quickly that just talking the way that you would to a friend or someone on the street doesn't really translate well to a show because you realize that you have to make that story engaging to someone who has no idea who you or the other person is. And you see this a lot. Someone will be like, my friend and I love talking to each other. And our friends say, we're funny. We're thinking of starting a podcast. I totally empathize with that, but it can't just be that. Yeah. I actually randomly last night met a pretty substantial, pretty big podcaster from the UK. We just happened to be sitting at the same table at a comedy show when sparked up conversation. And she made a really interesting point about the podcast market being very saturated because of what you just said. People thinking, oh, we were sitting at a bar and someone was laughing at me and my friend. So we think everyone will laugh at us. We should start a podcast. And there's so many of those out there. But I think the difference is Yes, podcasting is one of those things now where every TV show has a podcast. Every old TV show has the old washed up stars talking about every episode because everyone's just trying to make a quick buck. But I think the difference is between eight and 28 episodes is where people start to fall off. Yeah, it's about episode 14. Yeah, it's a statistic, right? Like people won't really go too far past that or maybe they'll go just under that. But you know the amount of work that goes into podcasting. So even if there are so many podcasts out there, it takes a few episodes for people to get their footing right off the bat. It takes a while till you start seeing growth, which is, hello, what we all want. But it's the consistency and the delivering that I think separates, this is a dated expression, but the men from the boys when it comes to podcasting. Yeah, things get saturated. So she was just kind of saying like, oh yeah, podcasting is great, but there's just so many out there. How can some stand out? And I think they can stand out by being consistently good. Yes. It's a combination of, it's a game of attrition because as you said, over 50% of podcasts stop around episode 14 or so. 
this is kind of a tangent, but there is this feeling, I think, especially in industries like ours, entertainment industries, where it's like, if you stop something, that means you failed. But sometimes we stop things simply because we realize it's not for us, or it's not bringing us the joy that we want, or we have other hobbies or pursuits we want to do. So that's fine. It's a combination of you have to just keep going. And also, you have to treat it like something that you want to continue to get better at. Okay, so while it's 10.30 a.m. here in L.A., while we're recording this, we're ultimately here to discuss Wild Nights, the podcast you started during the dark nadir of the pandemic in December of 2020. From those awful times comes episode one, quote, I started this podcast because I'm trying to decide, am I a reformed wild child due to the pandemic or if I'm just on hiatus? I know for sure that I'm in hibernation. So in the meantime, I thought I would start a podcast talking to some of the coolest people I know and listen to wild stories from their lives. This is not limited to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's any story that they want to share that's wild to them. But I bet there will be some sex, drugs, and rock and roll, end quote. Now, Rocky, as a fellow podcast host, you know that it can be important to have, for lack of a better word here, an angle, a hook, a theme, something that pulls in potential listeners. So it's clear from the many episodes of the podcast that are now in the can that you have a fairly large social circle of fellow performers, entertainers, storytellers. I imagine you could give your guests the time and space to talk about anything, and they would likely oblige you. So when you decided to talk to some of the coolest people you know on the record, what inspired you to approach them and approach this podcast from this particular angle? Well, first of all, can I ask, where did that summary come from? It sounds vaguely familiar, but I'm like, when did I write that? That is from episode one. Oh, that's the, so. <laughs> <laughs> I went deep. I went deep, Rocky. You went deep. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that's amazing. Essentially, you're asking what started it, why Wild Nights? Yeah, well, we can take it from two angles, right? Why did you decide to start the podcast? And considering that the coolest people you know, quote unquote, to quote you from episode one, are in many ways natural storytellers, you could have asked them to talk about anything from their lives. So why start the podcast, really? Aside from probably a similar reason that I started one where it was the lockdown, I wanted to talk with people. But why this particular angle? Why the wild nights angle? Well, it's funny. So I've always been a partier. You know, I used to throw my dolls on a bed, put a cover over us and like mingle through like I was hosting a party. I love hosting parties. I love throwing parties. I love everything about people who enjoy each other's company, having fun together and making memories. That to me is exactly what life is about. So I've always been a partier and I've always tried to be, you know, a good time. I don't like to drive the room down. I like to be the kind of person that comes in the room and make the energy better and make people feel at ease and make people feel like they can be comfortable and have a good time partying. When you say party, I want to guess that you're using a rather broad definition of it, which means that to party or to loop back to what you said seconds ago, making memories with people is what life is about. When you say party, I'm guessing you don't always mean, for instance, like dancing all night on the dance floor or having a wild debaucherous night, although I'm sure those are fun as well. But it seems like party in the Rocky vernacular could be even broader and it could be something as quote unquote mundane as just spending a long evening with a glass of wine with a friend. That party means just having a good time with someone you care about. Yeah. Or having a good time with someone you care about, having a good time with a group of people. It doesn't necessarily mean drugs and alcohol. You know, my friends are, a lot of them are crash dieters and will do like, okay, no drinking for a month and no this. So, you know, to be able to have fun without drugs or alcohol, to be able to have fun with somebody who maybe doesn't drink at all, maybe they're in a recovery, but they still want to have a good time and not making anyone feel the pressure to have fun the exact same way as someone else, but just to make sure that they are on the same channel and wavelength of like, we're in this to have a good time together. So that's always kind of been my angle, especially with groups of people. 2019, I was auditioning for a lot of commercials, a lot of voiceover stuff in the city. I was performing as an improviser. However, I was also working at a restaurant 
with people I really liked. Majority of our clientele was international. So it wasn't a lot of English speaking people, or if they did, they only really would speak whatever language that from where they came from. So Americans are much harder to wait on. That's just what I'll say. As as an ex-waitress for a long time, Americans are a lot harder to wait on. International clientele tends to be a little easier to wait on. They know what they want. They're not waiting to write a review or talk to your manager or get something sent back. They just don't want to be bothered. So when you work in an environment like that, it lends itself to a little more idle time. So I worked in a restaurant where we were doing tequila shots at three o'clock in the afternoon. We were smoking vape pens in the bathroom outside our service station. Then we were going out to the bar behind the restaurant I worked at, and we were just partying all night and having so much fun hooking up with guys and just saying yes to whatever came my way towards the end of 2019 into 2020. And I just woke up on New Year's Day. I came home at 6.30 in the morning from a friend's house in the Bronx. It had been a whirlwind month of partying that I said, I like looked at my skin. I felt like I felt unhealthy and I felt like, oh my God, what am I doing to myself? Like I have dreams. I have goals. I've had nights like that, yeah. Yeah, but I had like <laughs> I had like a year plus a really hard like month of that, just like going ham every night. And so I came up with the hashtag for 2020, well-behaved Rocky 2020. And I said I'm going to take a little more focus on the gym, make sure I'm meditating every day, make sure I'm eating better, make sure I'm drinking lots of water, I don't need to drink every single day, things like that. Maybe not mess with recreational, I don't know what we can and can't say on here. Say whatever you'd like. Be authentic. Drugs. Like if I was, you know, dabbling in a lot of Molly, I was friends with a Molly or am friends with a Molly crowd. I was, you know, like maybe I don't need to do Molly twice in one week. You know, that's not necessary. (laughs) So I came up with the hashtag WellBehavedRocky2020. And boy, did it work because (laughs) the pandemic came with a vengeance two months later. My job that I was working at, uh, New Year's Eve was our last day that that restaurant was open. So I got a job at a different restaurant where that kind of stuff was not going to fly. And I was really unhappy. And I was like, oh, God, like I hate this. I have to pursue my career. I cannot be waiting tables here for much longer. Two and a half months later, boom, we're hit with Corona. So obviously, I'd been in the restaurant industry for a long time. I was on unemployment. And I was kind of living my best life where I was getting unemployment. I wasn't drinking that much because turns out that in the pandemic, I'm not a big drinker, big weed smoker, but not a big drinker. And like I told you, I go to Connecticut to visit my family. We would socially distance uh, in my grandmother and my aunt's backyard. There's a lot of space. So we would sit by household. We would take tests. Everyone in my family is very on the same page about masks, tests, politically, like there's no arguments there. We all just wanted to keep each other safe and we trust science. And yeah, so I had a great 2020 comparatively to the rest of the world, spending time with my friends safely, doing all the things. Granted, it wasn't, you know, super fun in what I was used to, made the best of it. Then the fall came around and I started to get a little sad and, you know, you can't do those outdoor hangs anymore because it's the East Coast and it's freezing. And I was feeling creatively unfulfilled. I was doing improv over Zoom, you know, and there weren't that many auditions. I wasn't getting that many auditions. And one of the big things in entertainment is if you want to be successful, a lot of the time, especially if you don't come from nepotism, where you have relatives or family friends who are lifting you up in the entertainment industry, you have to make your own work. So I had been wanting to start this podcast for a long time. It was something like, oh, I want to start a podcast. I want to start a podcast. How do I start a podcast? I think I wanted to start it since probably January 2019, but I never executed it. So then I just kind of was like, yeah, I woke up one day and I go, I'm going to start this podcast. And you know, I had a little help from my brother had a podcast at the time and his girlfriend has a podcast right now that's very successful called Underrated. Everyone should listen to it. It's very funny. So they helped me out a little bit, but mainly I just hit the ground running and I had so much free time because I wasn't working. I was just on unemployment. And my first guest ever was my friend, Rich Templeton, who I had told him when I was interested in starting a podcast that I would like him to be my co-host. Like a year prior, I was like, Rich, you would be an amazing co-host if I start this podcast. Would you be interested? And obviously that didn't end up happening. But to honor 
the fact that I would have liked him to be a co-host had I done a different podcast, I had him be the first guest. And then, you know, the first few guests were people that I knew. But then I realized, huh, everybody's doing everything on Zoom. I'm still doing the Zoom with people in New York. I can do this with anyone I want if they are willing to. So then I just started reaching out to comedians in California and comedians in Chicago. I started reaching out to radio hosts all over the country. And yeah, that's kind of where it went from there. I don't know what it is, but if I look at a lot of my creative endeavors over the years, I feel like I am at my best when I'm collaborating with someone or a group of people. Because for me, anyway, self-starting or keeping myself on track, being my own boss, so to speak, when it comes to something like this, even if in my heart of hearts, I enjoy doing it and want to do it, keeping myself accountable can sometimes paradoxically be difficult. Was there any of that inside of you when you were first thinking of starting with a co-host? And what was it that made you, aside from you know it just not working out with Rich, what was it inside of you that made you decide, I'm going to take this step alone? And it wasn't even that it didn't work out with Rich. It just never got executed. Maybe I was lacking the confidence to think I could do it on my own. And I was like, I need a a co-host, but I never just executed it. So it wasn't like it was this thing where Rich couldn't do it and I didn't want him to do it. It was just, I never executed the idea. And then almost a year or two later is when I was like, oh, wild nights. I'm here alone in this pandemic. I got to do it myself. So basically what you're asking is like keeping myself on track in terms of getting the work done behind the scenes. I guess it's a broader creative question. To go back to something you said earlier about how if you're not the beneficiary of nepotism in our industry, that you have to kind of make your own way. You have to make your own work, especially in the 21st century with the internet where there are so many creators out there who are just doing it for themselves, so to speak. And some people can really thrive without structure. They can thrive by getting themselves up every day at 5 a.m. or whatever it is and, and being like, this is what I'm doing today. I have a schedule. And I want to be successful. I want to do the things that I love to do, but I often find it difficult to keep myself motivated, which again is a weird thing to express because why should it be weird to keep yourself motivated for something you enjoy doing, but somehow that does seem to happen. And as someone who is a fellow podcast host and fellow freelance performer, someone who has to go out, book your own gigs or audition for things, how have you gone about finding the structure to kind of make sure that you're doing it on a regular basis? Because you release your podcast more often than mine. Unless I've missed something, you haven't missed a single week since you started in December of 2020. I took four weeks off from season one to season two. I took a month off. But yes, other than that, I've put an episode out every Monday. I don't ever feel like I don't want to be doing my podcast. That's all I want to do 24-7. You know, there's days where I'm like, I just want to sit on the couch, eat some nachos and like watch South Park and, you know, smoke a joint. That's what I want to do or watch Big Mouth. I'm a big cartoon person. Since I begun the to-do list, like even right now, I'm like, I have eight things that even if I did today, the to-do list would still carry over to tomorrow. And then I still have to put the episode out tomorrow for Monday. And then Monday is a whole fresh week of promoting and networking and editing and editing the YouTube version and booking guests and then recording. I mean, the amount of work behind the scenes, putting out the episode, that's the easiest part. Writing the intro, recording the intro, editing the intro, editing the episode, that's the easiest part. The hardest part is checking the numbers, seeing if I can get a new listener, how can I get a new listener here and here and here. I don't feel any lack of motivation when it comes to this show. I just feel burnout in general because in 2021, the end of 2020 into 2021, from January till August, I would work on the show eight hours a day. I would feel guilty if I would go to the beach with friends and I'd be like, Oh, yeah, I would wake up and I would just be writing emails, editing, you know, networking online. I would just never, ever stop. And I was in heaven doing it. I never wanted to stop. My brother would like come past me. I'd be at the kitchen table and I'd be sitting like this. My brother would come past me and like push my shoulders back because he's like, you're hunched over the computer. He's like, did you go for a walk today? Did you get out? I just feel burnout in the sense that I'm a very social person. And because of the nature of my show where I have to talk about my week, I've set it up in a way where I need to find entertaining quips about the week. The Rocky Rundown. The Rocky Rundown. I need to go out and do things and be social, which I enjoy doing. But sometimes you're like, I just want to be home. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and then tomorrow is all day is Easter. So where I would be editing, writing and editing from the minute I wake up till the second I go to sleep, 
I want to engage with my family and I want to spend time with them and I have a full-time job. And so, you know, I often think like I would just love to go to like a retreat for seven days to just work on the show, but it's not possible (laughs) at the moment. I totally get it. I think I was weekly for the first 29 episodes of the show. And then I started burning out only because I think I was taking 10 to 12 hours per episode to prep. And that's still the case. But then I would take this podcast is audio only. So I think if it had a video element, I wouldn't be able to do this. But I would take around 20 hours to edit every episode and then write the intro and outro and then publish it and then email guests and all these other things. I was putting in, yeah, I guess similar, somewhere in the mid 30s range of work every week on top of. (laughs) like a normal job. And I was like, I'm not going to have any time to date, see my friends or anything. So I switched to a biweekly schedule. So not to inflate your ego too much here, Rocky, but it's impressive that you've been able to stay on a weekly schedule because I know how much work is involved in podcasting. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it is. And I feel like podcast hosts are the only ones who know how much work. And I'm not talking podcast hosts that that are on network. I'm talking indie podcast hosts are the hardest working people ever (laughs) because indie podcast hosts are not making a ton of money off their shows, if any, and have to also be human beings. It's like a hobby that takes up every inch of your life. So I appreciate you saying that. I think the benefits of being consistent will pay off eventually, but when? (laughs) Okay, so here's a very podcast host specific question. And I think this is probably the last insidey baseball one. Our podcasts are obviously, for any listeners out there of either Rocky's podcast or mine, our podcasts are a bit different in terms of content and tone. And I haven't known any of my guests on a personal level before interviewing them. But as a podcaster, I imagine you'll relate to this. As the host of the show, you play a large part in shaping what each episode becomes. You prime the listener for the interview they're about to hear because you get to frame the discussion before the guest even has a chance to speak. You write the introduction that you record separately from when you talk with the guest, and you get to ask the opening question the guest pretty much has to answer. And beyond that, after a guest finishes answering, the very direction of where the conversation goes next is pretty much entirely up to you, the host. So to get quite meta here, Rocky, in the process of hosting so many episodes, what have you learned about your guests and yourself that surprised you? Huh, that's a great question. I've learned that because a lot of the guests now, as the show's progressed, I don't know as people. I almost prefer that. Once in a while, I like to throw in someone I know and get them on, but I much prefer, I'm like, this is a week where I can kind of get to know, make a connection with someone in the entertainment industry and get to know them. Something that surprised me about myself is how many different types of people I've been able to have a conversation with. I think growing up, I was always surrounded by very diverse community. I'm biracial myself and I grew up in a very diverse town. So I've never had a problem with like talking to somebody. When I went to college, everybody was like, oh, everybody in my town was white. Everyone I went to school with, they would say that, that they've never seen any kind of person of color or any kind of diversity in their life. So for me, I love that I feel like I can talk to people from all different types of worlds. That feels like a superpower because I don't think everyone has that skill. So I feel lucky in that. And I've learned that about myself. And I've learned that I like having conversations with people of different backgrounds from different places, and maybe even different perspectives. And I think that's made me grow as a person. So I like that. And what surprised me about the guests is I've interviewed a little over 70 people. And just how gracious people can be, you know, people, their online presence sometimes can be intimidating. And you just have to fight past that. You know, Oprah wouldn't be like, well, I'm not going to interview this person because they're intimidating. You know what I mean? Like you just have to be like, okay, I'm a little intimidated and that's not a feeling I feel often. So follow that. And usually the guests that I'm going in a little tentative and intimidated by are the ones that end up being the warmest and kindest. And then I have a rapport with them afterwards. So yeah, people just never, ever judge a book by its cover and always let people just show you who they are rather than making the assumption of who they are. Yeah, very well said. On that sort of same note, you refer to fans of your podcast as the Party God Squad. And while guests have absolutely divulged stories that would grant them membership to the Party Pantheon atop Mount Olympus, 
They've also shared moments from their lives that are quite vulnerable and often introspective. This is a two-part question. What has the experience been like reaching out to strangers, people you don't know, and asking them to come on the show, knowing, I guess, explaining to them if they haven't listened to the show, the premise of it, which is like, hey, you don't necessarily have to tell a sex, drugs, and rock and roll story, but this is the kind of podcast that this is, and we're not just necessarily going to be talking about your latest movie or the thing that you just did. Like, We're going to go a little deeper than that. And what are some stories you've listened to over the last year and a half, wild or poignant, that have stuck with you? Well, in terms of asking the guests to be on the show and requiring them to tell a story, I always tell them the main thing I ask of them is that the story is whatever their definition of wild is. They can be rated G or it can be rated R. Like, I don't care. You can swear. You can say whatever. You can talk about whatever you feel comfortable about. All I care about is that the story is wild to them, whatever their definition is, because everyone's life experience is different, and that they enjoy retelling it. I don't like when people, and they haven't in my experience so far, I don't like when people tell a story that they don't enjoy retelling. Why are we opening those wounds? If we can laugh about a story, if this was crazy, if this was wild, that's fun to me. But to have somebody open a wound and tell a wild story that way, I don't like that. So I ask that they stay away from anything negative. Okay, so that was part one. (laughs) Part one. Um, And then the part two question. Oh, the memorable. I'm a raunchy person. I can be vulgar uh, in my own personal life. And I'm sure if you've listened to the show, you hear me say some things. I can be explicit. Like I operate that way. I don't mean any harm by it. I just operate in a more rated R way of speaking. But I was falling in the beginning in the trap of like, ooh, what if this person listens to it? What will they think? I have to be more tame and be more polite when it's like, I am a polite person. I'm a polite person who talks about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So, And I'm still kind and I still am kind-hearted and I don't wish any ill on anybody. So the story that almost gave me permission to say, okay, this show can be crazy and wild and it's okay was episode eight, Andrea Allen. She hosts the podcast Hot Mess Comedy Hour and she's a comedian in the city. Did not know her before the podcast and happy to know her now. But she told a story about having sex with her sublet, her French sublet. And it got really raunchy and it got really detailed and it was really explicit. And I was like, while she was telling it, my body was tingling. And I said to myself, this is it. This is what the show is. This is what people who are listening, if people are listening to a show called Wild Nights, this is what they came to listen for. So I'm grateful to her. Like, yeah, this is the show you've chosen to do, Wild Nights. So let people tell their Wild Nights stories and tell yours too while you're at it. So that's the most standout interview for me ever. And then, of course, there have been fantastic stories since then. And then there have been stories that have been a little more gentle and calm. But just because somebody, you know, isn't sleeping with someone or doing drugs or something, they still have a wild experience. And that doesn't mean that their story shouldn't be told because it's not society's version of wild. Sometimes you need someone to embrace the premise of your show so that you can have the courage to do it yourself. Yeah. And that's what she did. She embraced the heart of what the premise was and was brave in telling that story. It gives you a kind of permission to be like, I'm having such an amazing time listening to her talk about this. I should embrace that. Absolutely. That's exactly what happened. And I'm forever grateful for that because who knows when another crazy story like that would have come because the seven stories before that were amazing too. And I'm grateful to all those guests. But that was the first time I was like, oh, this is wild to me. Right, right. You know? Yeah. And it's interesting too, when you interview people who are familiar with your show, like I don't know how many experiences you've had with that where either in prep a guest has listened to your show or they've already listened to your show when you approach them. But it can be something really special when the guest gets what you're trying to do and embraces whatever that vibe is without you even having to ask them to do it. Like I've had moments on this show, for instance, where there are two things here. One, I'm trying to expand the show into more topics and areas than it was originally intended for because I needed to do it for myself. Yeah, evolution. Yes, exactly. I guess you could say if there's been a theme throughout many of the episodes, and not every episode needs to be this, but it's trying to embrace a kind of vulnerability that I have to 
make myself vulnerable in order for a guest to feel like they have permission to do so. When I used to work with actors, one of my favorite, I miss it to this day, one of my favorite things about working with actors was rehearsal. And there was a directing teacher that gave me advice back when I was in film school many years ago, where they said, oftentimes the best way to make your actors comfortable in rehearsal is to start by sharing something personal about yourself or when talking during rehearsal, if you're talking through a scene, don't force it, but try and make yourself vulnerable in front of the actors because then that gives them permission to go places, either in their performance or when they're improvising or trying to figure out a scene that gives them permission without saying, I'm giving you permission, that shows them, hey, you can take real risks here and I'm not judging you. And I'm going to show you I'm not going to judge you because I'm just going to tell you, oh, this scene reminds me of when blah, blah, blah. And you divulge something that makes you a little vulnerable, right? And I think it's about setting that tone. And it seems like that's what's happened with your show, whether or not your guests have listened to it before they know, okay, I'll use an actual example from one of your episodes here. There was an episode you did on Valentine's Day where you said, quote, I'm single, but to be honest, Valentine's Day doesn't make me sad. I had a lot of Valentine's Days in the past that were always thoughtful and always beautiful. And the ones I'll have in the future will be amazing too. So tonight, I'll thank my lucky stars that the universe is giving me a little break for a couple years where I don't have to have a man's dick in my mouth on a Monday. (laughs) End quote. Stand by it. (laughs) I laughed out loud at that. I laughed out loud at that because simultaneously, it was poignant, reflective, honest, and funny all at the same time. And when you as a listener, myself in this case, when I was listening to that episode, I laughed not just because it was funny, but oftentimes the best laughs come from someone being radically honest. And in that radical honesty, people can relate to that. And I feel like you get a lot of that out of your guests. And it's just something really interesting to see. Because Wild Nights with Rocky Pal isn't just a vehicle for guests to share their stories. As we mentioned earlier, you start each episode with what is known as the Rocky Rundown, in which you share the nitty gritty of your week with the Party God Squad. I love these segments because the language and imagery you use is so evocative and specific. Like there was one where you were staying at a hotel from hell in Atlantic City. It's closed for renovations now. I rode by it a couple of weeks ago. Oof, scary, scary. Sounds like it needed them. The imagery you evoked was that the front steps were covered in melted and stepped on Hershey's kisses. And I'm honestly not sure if I want to know whether or not that imagery was metaphorical or literal. No, it was literal. (laughs) Somebody threw a bag of candy. Oh, okay, good. I wasn't sure if the Hershey's kisses in this case was a metaphor for something else. I know. I would have said it. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. You know, I would have said it. (laughs) You would not have censored yourself. Or you talk about how when you witnessed a real-life intervention, which is an improvised intervention, it could even be something a little more mundane, like when you got a $25 fine from the city of New York because you put styrofoam in your recycling bin. Or, and I'm sure a lot of women can relate to this, you warn of gremsies, which are male gremlins that prowl the streets at night, who are sometimes as alluring as they are repulsive. Or to quote you, you said, if he's a red flag, I'm the United Nations bitch. (laughs) End quote. You have imaginary conversations with hip-hop artists on hypothetical car rides in which you play both yourself and all the artists in the car, like Kendrick Lamar and Snoop Dogg, among others. You also offer great advice, like B-Y-O-W-A-S-D, bring your own weed and smoking device if you're going out to the bar. And of course, there are also Rocky's high thoughts, your most stone thoughts of the week, like what's Trevor Noah's middle name? But underneath the witty writing, the body humor, and evocative imagery, is like I said earlier, something quite real. You are sharing pieces of yourself. You're sharing a life with strangers. You're figuring yourself out. You're making mistakes. You're winning. You're losing. You're breaking even. And what you share isn't always flattering, even when it's entertaining. So to hone in on the question, Rocky, there are moments while recording my own podcast where I can feel myself starting to freeze up a bit when I'm about to get personal and I don't go where you go. Like I don't divulge as much of myself as you do. So how do you go about getting to a place where you can both live in the moment and share those pieces of you while knowing that you're recording them for posterity for everyone to hear? I don't know. I don't know what makes me feel like I can be so honest or like silly and honest. I write my intros before I say them. It's not off the cuff. It's off the cuff when I'm writing them, but it's not off the cuff when I'm saying them. And 
when I'm writing them, I don't know. I can just go, that's funny and that's not funny. To me, you know, people can listen and say it's not funny, but to my humor, I can say that's funny, that's not funny, that's funny, that's not funny. So sometimes even if it's where somebody might look down on me a little or somebody might be like, ooh, I can't believe she said that a little, whatever, I know it's still funny and I would rather make someone laugh and relate than to keep it hidden. I went to see a stand-up show the other day and the comedian, I won't say who it is, but she is very up and coming, doing very well and, you know, making quite a name for herself. And she told a joke and her punchline, I just went, oh my God, this would be such a better punchline. And I literally, Michael, I almost made myself bleed when I spoke to her after the show because I was biting my tongue so hard. I don't know her well. I was biting my tongue so hard not to be like, listen. Don't take this the wrong way because your set killed, your joke's killed. But if you said this, I punched up her joke in my head and I'm like, this would be such a better ending. And it's just like, people don't want to hear that shit. They don't want to hear that. You know what I mean? Or maybe they do, but it's such a risk to be like, this is actually, I want to give you this gift. This would actually be funnier for you if you said it this way. Because she's going to be like, who are you? What are you doing? So I just want laughter, funny, whatever the funniest thing, as long as it's not at the expense of someone in a really harmful way, I want to get it out there. So sometimes that will make me look silly or it'll show that, you know, I'm not a perfect person. See, can't even say the sentence perfect person. None of us are. So somebody's got to be vulnerable. Somebody's got to entertain people in whatever way they can. So if I have the gift to do it, I try to do it. One thing I've come to appreciate while going through your catalog of conversations, specifically watching the video versions on YouTube, is the sheer diversity of your guests' communication styles. So some folks you talk to are super high energy. Others speak in more of a dry monotone. Some can talk for minutes at a time, while others require additional questions to sort of tease out what they might really want to say. And how seamlessly you're able to match each guest's energy, demeanor, and mood. For our audience, I really mean seamless in appearance because this kind of active listening and emotional mirroring is not easy, especially if you have no pre-existing relationship with the person you're talking to and you're trying to establish a connection with them through a webcam where you're not actually making eye contact. So I guess my question is, Rocky, what have you learned over the past, I guess by the time this episode comes out, over 70 episodes of your show about how to achieve authentic moments of connection with people oftentimes you've only just met? Well, first of all, thank you so much for that. That means a lot to hear. I got like a little choked up when you said that. So really, from the bottom of my heart, that's a very nice compliment. Both of my parents are very social people. They're very well-liked. So they're the kind of people that could always talk to anyone And I've always worked in customer service since I was 16. And because I was good at working in retail, I was like moved up very quickly. So I had to deal with a lot of personalities, you know, at the service desk doing returns when I was in retail. And I've had to deal with a lot of personalities when I was like cocktail waitressing in Times Square. You get everyone from all the corners of the world come in there and you've got to learn how to talk to this person and this person and still be charismatic. And then I was a waitress for eight years after that. Plus going to school for theater, you know, I've met so many different people in my life from so many different backgrounds. So I do feel like I can um, have a conversation with anyone from anywhere. And I don't take that skill lightly. It's something I always try to master and get better at. I talk to strangers a lot on the street and try to just always be a little bit on with a stranger. And um, yeah, that's where I practice. What I want for myself overall is to be a combo Rocky, Howard Stern, Oprah. (laughs) That's my vision. When people, if they are ever able to talk about me, say like, oh, Rocky Powell. She's like Howard Stern and Oprah and also herself. (laughs) And I want to tease this out a little bit just because I think it's an important distinction for the listener who might not actually understand what I'm getting at here. There's a difference between just being friendly, right? And being able to talk with anyone you meet. That is one specific kind of skill. But there's something additional happening here. And I would recommend anyone who's listening right now, go cycle through a few different episodes of Wild Nights with Rocky and just watch. Just scrub 20 minutes into a conversation with one guest, then scrub 30 minutes into a conversation with another guest. 
what I'm getting at here is when you're meeting someone for the first time, you don't know what their energy levels are and you don't know what they've been going through throughout the day leading up to the conversation. So it's not just about being open and approachable. It's literally about matching whatever energy or vibe the guest is giving off and meeting them where they are so that they are then comfortable doing whatever they need to do and saying whatever they need to say. Because I've met people who are very outgoing and extroverted and can talk to anybody and I'll watch them, right? And if they have like a very big open personality, which is oftentimes common with extroverted people who like talking to strangers, right? And they're talking to someone who might be like, let's say more reserved or they have a much calmer way of talking or maybe they're reticent to kind of express their emotions openly in kind of a broader way. It doesn't matter how open and eager to talk to strangers the extroverted person might be, they won't get a good conversation out of the person they're talking to if they're not adjusting their energy, for lack of a better word, their vibe, their way of speaking to wherever the person they're speaking to is. So it's not just the ability to speak with strangers. I feel like that's a rather broader skill. The two episodes I kind of watched back to back was one, and I'm blanking on their names, but this woman you were talking to, she was super high energy, talked a lot with her hands. I'm sure this probably applies to a few of your guests. But the other one I do remember more was a dude, I think out of Philadelphia, you and him talked about yams and his 17,000 records. And just between those two guests, we're talking about two entirely different vibes of how they're communicating. I guess I don't have a broader question on top of that, but I did want to make the distinction for anyone listening that it's not just an ability to be open to talking with people you don't know, but actually there's an ability to match where someone is. And I don't know if it's conscious or subconscious or whatever that makes someone more at ease talking to you if you've just met them. Again, thank you for the compliment. (laughs) No worries. I think that it comes a little bit from my dad is like that. He can match people's energy. So I'm probably cognizant of that or just I've spent a lot of time with him growing up. So I would watch him interact with a lot of different people. And, you know, he's, like I said, extremely well liked. And I think that comes with being able to match people's energy. So I'm sure I picked that up from him. And also I'm a longtime improviser. I've been doing improv for 11 and a half years. That'll help. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One of the most successful things in an improv scene is we call it peas in a pod. Peas in a pod would be Wayne and Garth from Wayne's World. Peas in a pod are Jim Carrey and What's-His-Face from Dumb and Dumber. Any kind of pair, any kind of pairing that acts extremely similar, those are called peas in a pod scene. And those were always my favorite, are always my favorite improv scenes to do. You know, somebody comes on stage, they start doing something, I would just match them because I think it's more fun to say yes So maybe I do that subconsciously having conversations. I just say, okay, this is where this person's at. I'm not going to be too much. I'm going to make sure that they know I'm exactly where they are so they don't have to do more. And if they want to go more, I'll go with them. And if they want to scale it back, we can scale it back. But I would attest that to improv and my dad. (laughs) Yeah, the peas in a pod example, I think is really astute. And I think it's like anything like tying a shoelace, like once you've done something enough times, even if it is practiced and intentional at first, like any skill, after a while, it just becomes a seamless part of who you are. And going back to watching your dad as a kid and being influenced by how he interacted with people, I have a kind of tweak on that with my dad. I'm not intimidated by someone's credentials, really, or where they're from or how much they've accomplished. I don't see that as a barrier. I see that as, wow, this person's got a ton of information that they're willing to give me for free if I just ask them. (laughs) And I get that from my dad. Like when we would go to church on Sundays and after church, all the churchgoers would let out. And we'd all drink coffee from a little coffee cart that would be nearby. And and I was like 10. So I, of course, had to do decaf because caffeine stunts your growth, quote unquote. And (laughs) and I'd put like four cups of sugar in it to make it palatable. But I would be with my dad and I'd watch him without any kind of shame or feeling like he was burdening anyone. Talk to people who would work at Lawrence Livermore Lab with lasers and like super high quality technologies. And then he'd talk with someone who was like an award-winning maker of origami who was famous in Japan. He would just ask questions and he was so engaged and excited about the topic whoever he was talking to specialized in. The thing that I really took away from that was, because I've always been a pretty good reader of like when someone is uncomfortable or like when they don't really want to be there. Like I just, I can pick up on that pretty naturally. And I never saw that with anyone that my dad was speaking to. And I, I think it's because... I could see 
that they could see how truly excited and engaged with everything that they had to say that my dad was. And I think when people can tell that you're really into what they have to say and you're asking good questions and making it about them, that people will more than happily share the stuff that they've learned, their life experiences. And so it's not exactly a one-to-one. Of course, I don't have the improv background you have, but that was something where like when people ask me like, well, how could you just talk to them? And I'm like, I don't know. They're just a person. And like, I'm super interested in what they have to say. None of us has the same story, right? Even a sibling growing up in the same house, my brother and I, our parents are still together, but we had, you know, he's eight and a half years younger than me. We have different childhood experiences, but we grew up in the same atmosphere and were raised by the same two people. So you're never going to have the same experience with anyone. So I'm curious like you are and your dad, like I'm curious about people's lives. How do you spend your day? What are your goals? What are you excited about? What's getting you out of bed every day? Because I have things I'm excited about and that I couldn't imagine not being excited about. So everyone either has that or they don't. And if you're not excited about anything, well, what's going on? What's under the surface? Are you okay? Meditation changed my life. And I turned to meditation and now I can't go a day without meditating. And if I do, I feel it. Before we get to the final question, what's one of the most interesting conversations you've had with a stranger off mic, just in the real world where you've met someone for the first time, let's say, and then you end up having a conversation that you never thought you'd have, or that was totally foreign or new or interesting to you that made you really grateful for reaching out and talking to that stranger in the first place? You know, I could rack my brain. And I could probably find another one, but because this one is popping up first, I think I'll just go with this one. In March of 2019, I went to New Orleans with three of my best friends, and we had a great time. And one night, I I believe it was the Friday night, we went to my friend Katie, who I was with. She has a, a bit fancier taste and sometimes is the reason we'll go somewhere a little nicer, a nicer cocktail bar rather than a dive bar, which I'm grateful for her for pushing us to do those things. And we go into this really nice bar in New Orleans. There's beautiful, Now I keep wanting to say satin, but it's not satin, velvet maybe. Velvet seats, velvet couches, beautiful bar, very old-timey looking like it could have been a bar in the movie Clue. And the owner of the bar looked like Colonel Sanders from KFC, if anybody doesn't know who Colonel Sanders is. He kept joking that we were Destiny's Child. He'd be like, okay, you're Michelle and you're Beyonce and you're Kelly. And he was just, you know, an older man. And our friend Mike was there, who's my friend's husband now. But, you know, at the time they were just dating. But he was like our male friend that was with us. So he wasn't being, you know, inappropriate in any way. But he he was a bar owner and he's flirting with us and he's talking to us. And we're talking to him more and more. And he's giving us a round of drinks, which the drinks there were minimum 15 to $18. And he's taking care of us. And then... And, you know, we learn a little bit, okay, he owns a bar. He's owned the bar for this amount of time. And we really were engaging with him and the alcohol was flowing. So I'm forgetting some of the things that he said, but he told us, have you ever been to a dachshund race? And so, of course, the four New Yorkers are like, no, we don't know what a dachshund race is, like whatever. He goes, I'm taking you to a dachshund race tomorrow. He said, I'll be at your hotel at 11 a.m., be ready to go. And he legitimately showed up at our hotel and he took us to a horse track in New Orleans, paid for the Uber and everything, took us to a horse track in New Orleans, paid for our drinks when we got there. And there were horse races going on. But in between each horse race, people would race the dachshunds. And of course, they wouldn't run all over the place. They weren't like serious race dogs or anything. It was just more cute But this is a whole culture. And he knew one of the people that was racing one of the dachshunds. So we got to go in the VIP section. And we're like in a puppy corral with all these adorable dogs. And then we get to watch them race. And that would have never happened if we weren't engaging in conversation with him, asking him questions about his life, finding out what it was like to be a bar owner in New Orleans. And then he gave us this really memorable experience. Did you know that dachshunds race? The little dogs? No, but I mean, this is the kind of doxing I can get behind. 
<laughs> yeah, well, he took us to the dachshund race. And I didn't even know that they were spelled that way. It's spelled like D-A-C-H-S-H-A-U-N-D. In the morning, we're in the hotel room, and I go, what the hell is a dosh hound? <laughs> My friend Mike goes, it's a dachshund, Rocky, not a dosh hound. <laughs> but I, I didn't even know that's how you pronounce dachshund. So yeah, it was just a cool experience from talking to a stranger, and now I have that memory. And you never know who you're going to speak to and talk to that's going to take you to a whatever their version of a dachshund race is. I think a great takeaway from that story and something that I've learned over the years too, whenever I go like on a business trip or even a vacation, especially if I'm traveling alone, I make it a point to try and talk to as many strangers as I can if the opportunity arises. And the lesson that I've learned over and over again, which I think is plain to see in that story you just shared, is that people really respond with kindness and openness when they feel valued. When you value the story they're sharing and you ask follow-up questions that aren't rooted in any kind of self-interest, you're just genuinely interested in what they have to say, people blossom like flowers. It doesn't matter where they're from or what their background is. When people feel like they matter, especially to someone who has no stake in their life, it can be really a truly magical thing, as cheesy as that sounds. And also, you don't know what kind of day they're having either. You might just make their day by giving them a little conversation. Sometimes I'll admit I'm a very chatty person and I'm happy to talk to strangers all the time. However, you know, once in a while, you're just like, I haven't had my coffee yet, or I'm a little tired, or I just, you know, for whatever reason, not wanting to be chatty. And there was another time in uh, December, I was waiting for my friend Kara, who happened to go to the dachshund race too. I was waiting for her. We were taking a flight to Jamaica for a wedding in December and I'm waiting for her at the bar and I could see the guy who was a couple seats down for me. He was wanting to engage. You can just kind of feel when somebody is wanting to have a conversation with you. And I was not wanting to have a conversation with him other than I was just tired. I wasn't in the mood. And so a lady comes and sits in between us and the two of them chalk it up. He pays for two rounds. He was like, your drinks are on me. And he paid for all her drinks and not even in a sexual way. I think they were just kind of vibing. And I was like, you know what? I didn't talk to that guy. However, I did do my random act of kindness for the day because if I had been talking to him, he probably wouldn't have talked to that lady and she wouldn't have got free drinks. So <laughs> that's great. Okay. So to start wrapping us out, I want to go a bit broader here to our shared industry. I guess you could say the entertainment industry, which of course encompasses, you know, everything from music to art, to stand-up comedy, to improv, to movies, to television. But that whole broad swath of what we call entertainment has been undergoing a series of seismic changes since the internet kind of took its full modern shape sometime around, let's say, 2012. So whether it's streaming services that are supplanting traditional cable networks or the death of the mid-budget movie, the ability for musicians to bypass labels entirely now, the decline of the traditional movie star, stand-up comedians growing their audience on social media faster than they could in the club, there are dozens of examples across every corner of what we call entertainment. Traditional gatekeepers are losing power, new ones are stepping in. You're doing something with your podcast that really wouldn't have been possible not too long ago, connecting with entertainers you've never met and hosting them on a show that you self-publish week after week. And that wouldn't have been attainable even 20 years ago. So to get to the where do we go next question to wrap us out, as you've talked with fellow performers across the country who are at various stages of their success, all trying to find their way towards living out their dreams, and as you've been doing the same thing, what have you witnessed kind of on the ground level about where the entertainment industry is, where it's going? What does the future of opportunity for entertainers look like in your view? Where do you see it going next? Fortunately, it seems more attainable than ever because of the internet and because of self-producing and because, like you said, the gatekeepers are changing. And now the sad thing about it if you have a lot of followers, even if your content isn't great, the sad thing is if you have a lot of followers, you can just, somebody will be like, okay, they can be our brand ambassador and people can get paid that way. And they're just selling merch because a lot of people 
happen to scroll past their page. You know what I mean? Anybody can be famous and not in a way where a reality TV star used to be able to be famous. It's like anyone can be famous just because they had like one viral, because they were funny one time, you know, and now they're the brand ambassador for Home Depot or something. You know what I mean? So that's kind of icky part about it. I went to school for theater. And so, you know, you're like, oh, you work so hard, but you can't even compare yourself to them. So that's the unfortunate part. The fortunate part is with entertainment, I think that as long as you're consistent, putting quality out there, not biting from other people and rooting for people that you want to see succeed, I think that just with patience, you can really get there wherever there is. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to be patient, trying to be consistent and not hurt anyone along my path and see where it goes. And I think that will lead to some good things for me. I certainly think so. And as I mentioned earlier, I kind of came across your podcast serendipitously because you reached out on Reddit and I'm really glad that I did. And one of the amazing yet sometimes frustrating thing about the internet and really podcasting in general, if we're going to talk more thinly here, is that discoverability can be so difficult, right? Like if you hadn't reached out to me, I never would have discovered your show and all the fascinating and interesting and exciting and weird and strange conversations that you've had with so many different people. And so one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on was not just because I think you'd make for a great guest, but also I think that your show is really worthwhile. Just from like a sociological perspective, seeing so many people from different walks of life share their stories is really fascinating and fun and cool. And again, something that we never would have been able to see 15 years ago, which seems like a lifetime ago. So my thanks goes out to you, Rocky, not just for taking the time to speak with me today, but for having such interesting and engaging and fun and hilarious and irreverent and deep and moving conversations. So thank you for your work. Thank you for the conversations you have. And I look forward to listening to more. Thank you so much. There's some really good episodes coming up. I batched a bunch this week and I'm always a little nervous that, you know, someone's going to come and tell a dud and <laughs> I can assure you the upcoming episodes, no duds. Everyone really delivered. You hear that everybody, no duds. Tune in June 21st for a conversation with Dan Bulick and Pat Brennan, hosts of the YouTube show Console Wars. Thank you for listening and wherever we go next, I hope you'll be there too. Waiting on the helicopter. It really does sound like it's going in just circles and 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 circles. It's hovering, 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 and I wish it would just land.